This is the Eclipse Viewer, episode 45, the monthly podcast dedicated to the Criterion Collection's Eclipse series of DVDs. Uh, my name is David Blakesley, joined as always by Trevor Barrett. Hello, Trevor. Hello, David. And we are, uh, as we were last time, joined by special guest Pablo Canota. Pablo, good morning. Hey, great to be back. Yeah, so probably maybe good evening or good afternoon in your part of the world. Good Pablo afternoon. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, Pablo's been joining us from Germany. And uh, if you didn't listen to the last episode where we had a chance to introduce Pablo, uh, Pablo and I made our acquaintances uh, oh, maybe a couple months ago, maybe, online where we uh, were just kind of discussing and he was just sharing his appreciation of our podcast, which I always enjoy <laughs> reading and uh, connecting with our listeners. Uh, but he also expressed a pretty strong interest in uh, discussing the set that we are in the midst of covering, this is the part two of a two-part series on the warped world of Koryoshi Kurahara. This is Eclipse Series 28, a set that was released back in 2011, I believe, and uh, met with pretty positive response when it came out because it was uh, just kind of a perfect example of what the Eclipse Series is best at, of uh, introducing uh, cinephiles to films that they might have maybe heard about a little bit or maybe not have heard about at all, uh, but are are unique and interesting and, uh, you know, often very difficult to find up until the time that Criterion, you know, puts them in these Eclipse series collections. Uh, Koryoshi Kurahara was a Japanese director who went on to achieve very broad and considerable uh, popularity in Japan. And Pablo, as a uh, you know very dedicated uh, researcher and viewer and, and writer about Japanese cinema, uh, made a very excellent guest for the first part. I'm sure we've got a lot more great conversation and insight that Pablo has to offer as we wrap up our coverage with uh, discussions about two films, uh, Black Sun from 1964 and Thirst for Love from 1967. So, Pablo, welcome back. Yeah, great to be here. And I have to say that these films are probably my favorites in the box set, so I'm very eager to join the discussion today. Absolutely, yeah. These are, you know, it's only two films, and often we uh, we tackle a considerable bit more in one of our episodes, but I think these are two films that will will lend themselves to a pretty excellent discussion, and I'm very eager to hear what both Pablo and Trevor have to say, and I've got a few little, uh, you know, insights to offer of my own. So, uh, yeah, just sit back and enjoy, listeners. Uh, hopefully, if you have not yet seen these films, but listen anyways, uh, we will uh, encourage you to uh, go out and take a look at them yourself. If you have seen them, but maybe it's been a while since you've rewatched them, uh, we'll definitely give you some, some uh, you know, companionship as you can listen in and uh, perhaps, uh, you know, get, get that urge to rediscover them for yourselves. Because I think these are both films that uh, lend themselves to multiple viewings and, and yielding uh, new, uh, just, just new experiences, new responses uh, with, with each passing view. So uh, that was my experience anyway. So, uh, Trevor, let me just ask you a little bit. Uh, you've had a chance to, to watch uh, Black Sun and, and Thirst for Love. Uh, you got just kind of a general opening response as your kind of uh, first encounter with the set? 
I'm kind of on the opposite end as Pablo, I'm afraid. So I'm looking forward really? to the conversations. Okay. Yeah, I, okay. I, All right. I like these. We have these. a little friction. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you know, we'll, we'll see how this goes. No, I, I, I come today uh, looking to understand these films a little bit better because they didn't do as much for me as the first three films in the set. I mean, there's some, hmm. there's definitely a heightened drama in both Black Sun and Thirst for Love. I mean, these are characters who, you know, if their skin were just a little bit looser they would explode because there there's so much um so much going on underneath the surface of them um right. and definitely the the kurahara is is uh playing even more with his camera and doing a lot of unique things but for some reason they, they still felt to me just a little bit hollow a little bit empty um at the end of the day at least in relation to the first three which i felt had quite a bit of heart and, uh, you know, we're, we're saying some things that I just latched onto maybe a little bit more easily or, or, um, that I could latch onto because I was, I was on their save, same wavelength. Whereas these, maybe I, maybe I just need a few more viewings, if a little bit of encouragement, a little bit more understanding. Um, it, they, these were a little bit harder for me to, to really wrap my head around and get on board with. So, you know, there, there we go. I'm, I'm, I'm saying that uh, doesn't mean I didn't like them. Um, I did like them and I'm anxious, like I say, to, to learn a little bit more about them and see if that, uh, if that changes my perspective at all. Yeah. I actually rewatched Thirst for Love uh, this morning and I can, can sort of understand what you mean. It feels, I thought it felt much more shallow than when I had last seen it. In some ways, yeah. Well, I, like I say, you, you don't you don't need me to convert you, Pablo, into <laughs> not liking these films. <laughs> I would much rather it be the other way around. But um, but yeah, I'm, well, I'm very my curious. To you, Trevor, Tre Trevor. I'll, I'll Ooh, just I don't say know channel. if I want to hear this so quick, well, David. No. That that sounded a little <laughs> bit abrasive. Um, my response well, no. to you, Trevor, is <laughs> well, is this challenge accepted? I think I think there oh, are good, some good. pretty fantastic things to say about these films and and just some really uh indelible moments that they've created uh in my you know viewing and and it is i i have sort of watched and live, lived with these films and revisited these films a few times over the past couple of years and so uh yeah they 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 definitely both resonated quite quite powerful with me um uh just they stirred up pretty deep emotions actually. And so, uh, yeah, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, every listener or viewers mileage may vary on these. Uh, they are kind of out on the edge. Uh, this is you know, one of the things I admire is that Kurahara is very willing to just kind of throw himself into, into this task of putting very, you know, very, very, uh, strong and complex characters on the screen and, and maybe presenting messages that aren't as socially palatable or or uh, easily digested uh, as others might be. But, uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of nerve in these films, and, and that's what I really appreciate about them. I, I definitely agree with you there. There's a lot of nerve. 
and um and maybe it is the message i'm not i'm not 100% sure i'm excited to to get into that but but you are right about one thing not well you're right about many things david but <laughs> well there's <laughs> that one but time one thing i was that right you said that struck with me <laughs> one thing that struck with me is you said that they create a lot of indelible moments and i i definitely yes. agree with you there if if i look at the whole set i think that these two films have more uh, moments that really just struck me and that'll probably remain as images in my mind a lot more than images that were in the first three of the set. Um, and, and maybe it's just, uh, you know, again, uh, me trying to wrap my, my head around them. Um, so anxious to, to hear your insights and, and see what you, what you have to say. But, but the thing that makes me scared, and I don't know if you want to get into this now, but what if I were one of the Nikatsu uh, executives who who kind of started to push him out or oh. push Suzuki <laughs> out? I was like, whoa, these are the films I'm not latching on to. I can kind of see where they're coming from. Man, what a what a poor thing to see my in myself. <laughs> so. Well, if you're a Nikatsu executive, you're also looking at that bottom line. You know, both the the the, the box office takes versus the expenditures of, of putting these films together. So you've at least got, you know, the yen to back you up. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it, if you would have been a Nikatsu executive, of course, in 1967, you were in a deep financial crisis. And, oh, I'd, I'd, I'd be pretty nervous. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> and, you know, to put it uh, blunt, Nikatsu basically wanted their filmmakers to cut the bullshit. <laughs> you know, they wanted uh, to get, they wanted to make uh, more commercial, <laughs> commercially attractive films and didn't put up with directors, uh, you know, protecting their creative integrity. <laughs> this was right. the last uh, thing that Nikatsu wanted and needed at the time. Uh, you know, uh, just uh, three years later, Nikatsu switched to pornography, at least softcore pornography. So uh, they were. <laughs> now, in a now deep I'm not going to go there with, the, with my, <laughs> where I see myself. <laughs> well, which is interesting because Thirst for Love certainly had some of those elements. I don't want to get too far ahead of the conversation there. That was a very erotic and sensual film, but it wasn't pornography it wasn't you know overtly like you know peekaboo cheesecake you know show some skin in kind of a a real explicit way so anyways but but you're right this this kind of gets us back to the conversation about uh film as product where basically you want to keep the cost down of production and get high yields and so from a purely mercantile business oriented perspective you know, what can you do to, you know, keep the people coming back and paying their admission tickets, you know, uh, with the lowest investment, but, but the biggest profit margin. And that's just where movie making is indeed a business. And a lot of people make their living off it, not just these uh, tours, these visionary directors that we, uh, you know, aficionados celebrate and appreciate and and sometimes uh, put up on a pedestal because they were kind of martyrs for their cause. They did, you know, take those bold creative risks that, you know, got them kicked out of a pretty good paying job and, you know, thrust out into uh, the wastelands of independent, uh, obscure cinema. So, uh, yeah, they're, 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 that is always the counterbalance here. We we do have to recognize that we're looking at you know, commercial course. products. Yes, And, of course, this is an aspect that often gets overlooked in Japanese cinema that it was a, a 
company-controlled uh, industry. It wasn't a, uh, you know, it wasn't just a creative uh, force. It also was a money-making machine. <laughs> uh, and yes. even, even until the 70s, even the, the most arti artistically motivated directors mostly worked for established studio systems and were only able to make their daring and, and uh, artistic films because uh, they were some uh, they were able, able to make money with them uh, if yeah there, there was an yeah. audience for them there were, there course, was an yeah. audience for 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 cutting edge and, and innovative cinema I mean people in Japan didn't just want to get pablum they didn't want to just have you know, simplistic, childish stories. I mean, well, I mean, some. there was some of that. Some <laughs> yeah. of that was there. You know, the the the, the Godzilla spinoffs and all the you know, crazy <laughs> monster movies. Uh, some of the sort of the more generic samurai action films, the the yakuza gangster dramas. I mean, all of that. But we are talking here with the Koryoshi Kurahara, as I've already said, went on to become you know one of the most commercially you know successful. Uh, filmmakers in Japan but this this set kind of captures a period of time where he was very you know very creative uh, very uh, free-spirited but uh, he ended up kind of working himself out of a job at least for a period of time so so yeah that that's a pretty great preliminary warm-up conversation but why don't we uh, why don't we get into black sun you're going to go ahead and kind of guide us through the discussion. This is the film that you've kind of singled out as your, uh, you know, as your, as your favorite among the set. So uh, why don't you just go ahead and take it away and tell us a little bit about Black Sun from 1964. Yeah, okay. So Black Sun is about a, a young, basically a slum dweller, May, who lives uh, in the remains of an old church, which was bombed out or something like that. And he's also very much obsessed with jazz music. Well, obsessed would be a too soft of a word. He, is, he lives for jazz. He embodies jazz music with every inch of his body. And uh, to make... <laughs> and his life uh, suddenly becomes much more exciting when a black GI uh, stranded, is stranded in his, uh, little, uh, in his little ruin that he lives in. And this black GI, uh, Jill is on the run from uh, Japanese authorities, uh, I believe because he murdered someone. And yeah, there's a little there's a little uh, altercation you see sort of early on in the film where the MPs are swarming in, some kind of a fight is broken out, and one of uh, one of the military men stationed there in Japan has been killed, 
and now there's a runaway. Yeah, that's Gil, the uh, you know the black American soldier. And of course, our uh, main character May is uh, in the beginning completely enthusiastic about a black man, since black men are basically the embodiment of jazz music. He uh, believes that this guy will is will be like all jazz music, like all ble- ble- black people. Sorry. In his mind will be a brilliant musician <laughs> and a brilliant guy, but he has to learn that basically <laughs> only because you are a mem- member of a certain race or skin color, you not you are not naturally a, a embodiment of of the culture. Yeah, which, you you uh, may not be able to just have a natural talent for the trumpet. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> for example, yes. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, right. So, so, so May is basically operating under these, you know, I would say naive, but but still very racist kind of assumptions. Oh. Uh, he venerates the black culture. It's it's a it's an exotic other, just as. You know, in in the West here, the the Japanese uh, and Orientalism kind of embodies this this you know uh, alluring way of life. This this something that's just really different than all the traditions and all the usual stuff that we see around here in the USA or even over in Europe. Or you know, it, it, there's there is always that attraction when you kind of become a, kind of a connoisseur of of the uh, elements of some foreign culture. And and here you see that May uh, uh, is, you know, very very much kind of entranced by the, the wildness of this jazz. And you think about traditional Japanese music and how plaintive and simplistic, you know, the the the, the what the two or three stringed koto and and just the kind of the stripped down Zen sensibility of classical Japanese, you know, art and music. And, and here's jazz and and. Yeah, Trevor, you uh, hopefully you'll be able to drop a few sound samples in here. That that opening uh, theme of of uh, Black Sun, uh, kind of a an improvised sounding drum solo with blowing horns and it, the sounds of what sounds like humans screaming and groaning, oh, yeah. <laughs> kind of stuff. But it, but <laughs> this this music is as far removed from what uh, Maya has has grown up with or has sort of maybe had impressed upon him. And I think it, it fits his status. He is an outcast from society. He is a, he's a thief. He's a probably wanted. He's probably got warrants out for him, but you know, uh, they just kind of let him live there on the fringes. And as long as he's not caught in the act of doing something outright criminal, I guess, the, the authorities are sort of let him content to let him be. You know, he lives like in the say he's a squatter in a in a ruined church, and uh, you know, basically a, a man without aim or purpose. I mean, the very first scene of the film is him kind of uh, you know stealing some some wire. It looks like uh, just some scrap metal from uh, from guys who are you know sifting through a junkyard and trying to find things of value in there. So he's he's really you know just almost like a parasite just living on the uh, the outer you know fringes of society and you know just kind of scrapping his way through the world and and there's a question what do you think about this pablo is is may I the the same character that we see in the the warped ones or or i mean cuz he's kind of built that way in the eclipse series credits and the, there is some continuity between the two films so well, do you think we've got a sequel here or is this just two similar similarly themed movies well, 
this particular character was very much uh, the persona of the star, Tamio Kawachi, who was often typecasted in these roles as sort of uh, almost insane, uh, obsessive and wild young man. So it, you could say it was a sequel of, sequel of, of sorts, but in fact he played these roles in many, many films. At Nikatsu he often played henchmen, for example. Of course, you know, the bad guy's henchmen. Of course, oh, only yeah. the inside, insane one once. So, yeah, you, uh, want, you want to have that crazy one who will just do exactly, anything, yeah. go the anywhere, torturer, yeah. reckless. <laughs> exactly, right. Yeah. Or just put himself into the most ridiculously risky hit, hit, hit job situation. Yeah. yeah. Even if he dies in the... Uh, in the, in the the job, ex- executing the job, you know, well, okay, he was disposable, right? Mm, yeah, exactly. Well, and uh, the reason why I love this film so much is basically because, because I can very much identify with this young character and his passion. I obviously don't live on the edge of society, and I'm certainly no thief, but uh, I'm also very much intrigued by a culture which yes. is very much different from my own. You know, as a young German guy who is completely in love with Japanese cinema, I can feel what he, what he goes through when he actually meets what he thinks is basically, oh, and, or when, he, when basically his ideals are shattered, uh, when he finds out that, of course, only because not, or not all black men are saints are good at music, at music. Of course, <laughs> I never idolized uh, Japanese people, you know, as people. I mm-hmm. fell in love with their culture, and this is, of course, the difference. Our hero can't differentiate between the people and their culture, which I, of course, because I engaged, engaged uh, with the culture on an academic level. I can, but... Well, it has still, it has some something heartbreaking uh, to it that his ideals are shattered, are shattered, even though uh, he's probably not the nicest of God, guys. He gets uh, very much mean-spirited over the course of the film, as you will remember. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, their, their relationship goes through incredible peaks and valleys of... of you know, closeness and respect and, and kind of almost an intimacy to incredible hatred and, and just physical rivalry, kind of savagely trying to get the upper hand on each other because they're in a very perilous situation. Uh, but, 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 yeah, to go back to your earlier point about um, this kind of respect for other cultures and all, I think, I think in May's case, you know, in Japan they were still a very – homogenous society at that time and maybe still are to some degree although not nearly as much as they once were i mean japan was kind of notoriously kind of a fortress culture and civilization they really worked hard to keep outside influences and had a very uh high regard for their own race and 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 there's some pretty good essays that i've linked to in our show notes that talk a little bit about how this film you know sort of taps into some of the unresolved uh, racial tensions of Japanese culture, but I think for May, you know, this again probably f- pretty uneducated young man who maybe stumbled across jazz because it was kind of this 
hip happening thing in his his subculture at the time to actually see a, a real live black man was like you know <laughs> amazing oh, there's that that great line where the guy you know gill is just kind of you know grimacing at him pointing a pretty deadly machine gun right in the middle of his chest he's like this is my lucky day <laughs> <laughs> i love you I love you exactly. Yeah, Miles Davis trumpet. I love. I love you, <laughs> you Negro. <laughs> well, and he reverses that later on when he realize when he's kind of disillusioned. But he doesn't just say, "Oh, this particular guild." He he's kind of a jerk. He goes, "I hate all black men," and he starts tearing off his posters. And you know, it's, yeah. it's almost the reverse of all of that. Where now he's lumping uh, all of them into this disillusionment, or you know. Just kind of having that kind of response to it, so that that is that, I like that, Pablo. I mean, I definitely can see that throughout the film, and um, uh, I think it's a it's a very important kind of a topic to discuss and to to look at, and it's it's told in such a frenetic, you know, exciting way. Um, so like, you know, I'm, I, it, my my own issues with it are, are, are maybe that it goes a little overboard, particularly with. Gil himself, or rather, with with Chico Rowland's performance, mm. I mean, it's oh yeah, it, it's so heightened that um, you know, and I can see myself being on board at sometimes. You know, sometimes I was watching it and thought, no, you know, he's he's playing it just uh, with this kind of searing energy. And then other times I'm like, okay, come on, man, uh, re- reel it in just a hair, <laughs> you know. I don't, I don't know. I mean, but but um, but I do love the themes that you guys are talking about. Those were yeah. very interesting, and I think that we can all uh, relate to that in some way. Where whether it's, um, you know, even sometimes just uh, uh, p- different aspects of our life that we may realize are not everything that they that we thought that they were, or you know, like a celebrity or something. You know, we we just love them and they have this persona that we we just love, and then we we meet them and we go, oh my gosh, that person is awful. <laughs> you know, yeah. or even, and, and you or start even to see that our, in everything. Yeah, even in just in our studies of of uh, artists that we appreciate. I mean, like you know, mm-hmm. Ingmar Bergman. I'm a huge fan of his, and yet I think this guy must have been a real bastard to live with. <laughs> and, I, mean, I love and, all and, of his crew too, but you right. know, they probably all had their own little foibles. Right. That... <laughs> and and you know, and and he himself acknowledged that in some of his own writings and it's like you know he 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 broke hearts he 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 left people behind and and yet he still has this incredible body of work and so you you have to open your eyes to the reality that the artist is often a very flawed human being who's got extraordinary gifts in some areas but as a person uh you don't necessarily want to model your life after them you know but uh, yeah we're getting off subject a little bit there well, well uh, kind of let's, goes let's into about, this though um, yeah, because yeah. you know what happens in this film is that he does start to see gill as an individual someone that has this individual experience that's put him in this absolutely desperate situation and so he starts to feel less betrayed by him and more sympathetic to trying to help him through his own personal circumstances here um where and it, and it kind of comes back to the to the racial part where he's you know you don't fit into this society and you're getting chased by your own people um you know all the other americans are searching for you and you probably didn't fit into the american society back in the u.s i mean he starts to see gill as a as a, a singular being um, which I think also kind of goes back to this, where at first it's kind of disenchanting and disillusioning, but then he he kind of grows and starts to to see this uh, Gil as as a person. True, yeah. 
Yeah, so Pablo, I, I want to talk to you, you know, Trevor, you mentioned the Chico Roland, uh, the, the actor, the pretty, uh, and he's a pretty memorable presence. I, you, you remember probably him from Genocide, right? Mm, yes, of course. Yeah, and so, so yeah, and, also, and others. Go ahead. He also played uh, a great part of a seducted priest in uh, Suzuki's Gate of Flesh. Uh, I those, believe it's part of the Criterion Collection. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, those are those are the two films that first came to mind. He may there may be another appearance or two of Chico Roland in the Criterion Collection. The but, World uh, Wars. The oh, that's right. Yeah, he he had a, a brief kind of a, almost like a cameo bit yeah. in there. He wasn't like a main character. Certainly no nowhere to the same level of prominence in this film. So no. uh, I don't know if either of you. I don't know if, you have, if I even sent you the link, but there's a really fantastic article. Uh, from a website called the Tokyo Files about uh, the the life and career of Chico Roland, or as they call him in that article, Chico Laurent, which kind of gets into the Japanese, the translation of Japanese, where the L and the R are sometimes interchangeable. And Chico Laurent might be the preferred or more definitive uh, name because that's how he's referred to in an article from Ebony magazine that was written back in 1963, actually before this film was released. That uh, you know, Ebony Magazine is sort of like the the Black Americans version of Life Magazine, if you will, uh, really kind of targeting the African American audience of its time. Uh, they did a profile of of Chico Laurent, uh, a black man over in Japan who had achieved considerable success, and he's got somewhere in the range of fourteen to nineteen films appearances to his credit in the Japanese industry, and obviously he he cut a very distinctive profile. I mean, there weren't a, not a lot of people of color working in Japanese cinema, but he he could be counted on, and and he actually did have some skills. He he could play the trumpet. He he played the trumpet well enough. To uh, you know, to participate in jazz bands. He had a little band that was going. That was before his film career. He also studied the martial arts, so he was capable of you know holding his own in action movies where he had to do some some fighting and, and that kind of thing. Uh, yeah, where he comes up maybe short as a thespian is in his enunciation and his vocalizations. Mm. He is this kind of talking all the time. <laughs> and, yeah. and in this movie, I think that 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 fits actually quite well because he really yeah. seems like this wounded dog. And I don't mean that you know the term disrespectfully, but he's he's desperate. He's he's really fighting for his life. He's got a pretty nasty bullet wound to his leg. Uh, he's had to kind of put a little tourniquet on there just to stop the bleeding. But he's kind of going out of his mind and in pain and frustration. Uh, and he has no clue as to what he wants to actually do, how to get himself out of this dilemma, but <laughs> that's that's where he's stuck. So uh, any other things you want to say about uh, Chico or, or his performance? I don't know, just let somebody take it from there. Well, he perhaps wasn't the greatest of all actors, but I as well like, it, like his performance uh, very much in this film. You, once, you put it very nicely when you wrote in your review, David, uh, you wrote about Black Sun, and you wrote it's a bonkers exercise in mayhem. And <laughs> yes. he he very much uh, fits the bill uh, on this one. You know, this one note, uh, acting performance, just delivering an expression of fear and anguish and, and pain. Uh, I really liked his overacting, even though <laughs> I think it was perfect in this film. Um, yeah, there may be there may be other actors who could have done it with more refinement or more range of emotion, but here he's just 
full throttle the whole time. Yeah. That that gasping, teeth gritting, you know, wild eyed, you know, uh, mania that that he projects almost in every scene. Except the the part where he's kind of falling asleep <laughs> and biting, <his laughs> which is also away. also yeah. very believable because you almost made it almost made me wonder maybe Chico Roland was falling asleep, <laughs> you know, because he's <laughs> he's so so invested and in using so much of his body that when he's sweating or when he's starting to kind of look delusional, it's believable that. That that's actually Chico going. Okay, yeah. we got to take a break, guys. <laughs> the, art, know, because, the article actually points out specifically he does not use like fake tears. Uh, he he throws himself you know viscerally into his performance, and I think you know even though I mean you know Lawrence Olivier has no no concern for competition here. He he's you know he's going at a full body, heart and soul, and I think. Again, if you cast him in the right role, which I think in this case it was a perfect casting, uh, you know, he came through. And so maybe in his full filmography, uh, if we ever have a chance to see more of it, uh, there is a little bit more range here. He he did, actually did some Japanese TV work as well. Uh, but in the three films, uh, the Gate of Flesh, Genocide, and this one, uh, you hear a lot of that same kind of raspiness and that kind of weird um, enunciation. So... I don't know. Sometimes maybe the Japanese directors really didn't know how to direct a character to speak more, more coherently in English. Uh, but, you know, it's what it is. And I think in this case, it works quite, quite brilliantly. Do you know if he spoke uh, Japanese? He learned some. In fact, yeah, again, the Ebony article mentions he he knew, you know, portions or at least could be somewhat conversant in like seven or eight different languages. I think probably mostly Asian dialects, you know, some Chinese. I mean, he, you know, he, okay, so it's a little bit more biography. He was a Korean War veteran, which again, you know, getting into a little bit of the psychology of, of the Gill character. Was this a guy who's kind of a, a an undiagnosed PTSD war survivor? I mean, he seems pretty pretty fragile and, and pretty intense uh but but again back to chico laurent or roland uh, he was a korean war veteran who you know basically after he had done his tour of duty uh just decided to hang around the uh you know the the you know east asia for a while wound up in hong kong uh learned a little bit about the city uh actually uh, was kind of almost like a tour guide or at least you know had some connections there and just kind of built himself a a bit of a career he did travel back and forth to the united states uh, again the ebony article mentions that just some, some different odd jobs that he worked out in california uh but but basically just kind of found his way back to japan eventually and and uh you know, found that he could he could uh, make a decent living for himself there, and you know, playing a pretty distinctive role in in a series of different films. So, yeah, it's it's a pretty fascinating read. And again, it's it's the I think the second link I put up there after my own review of Black Sun, I, I really highly recommend it because the other great thing about the article is it gets into the the location study of where this church was located in the district of Shibuya in Tokyo. And the author has done a phenomenal job of kind of researching, you know, the specific location of the church and the buildings in the area and how much that area has changed because apparently buildings, uh, unless they're of great historic value, often buildings don't last very long in, in cities like Tokyo where there's a lot of construction and deconstruction and reconstruction going on almost constantly as the city continues to modernize. So, uh, yeah, this guy's really dedicated some some uh, loving attention to this film, and it's it's a very great resource. 
Yeah, he seems like a true uh, renaissance man. Uh, incredible, yeah. So, so again, uh, you know, what happens in this film is it really becomes this kind of, as, as I think Michael Kresge put it, or no, this is Chuck Stevens again. He wrote these, but but kind of a uh, very unusual buddy film because these two guys are at certain points deadly rivals. I mean, they're kind of wrestling over who has control of this machine gun, uh, and then they are basically kind of these enmeshed, you know, partners uh, fighting for their own survival. And May, who, you know, ends up, you know, leaving the, the, the church and coming back only to find that it's being, decon, you know, destroyed. It's, it, it is finally being demolished because it's a condemned, bombed-out ruin. And it's just such a, it's just such a great—I mean, the church is, in a way, it's a character unto itself because it's, it's imbued with all this religious symbolism. There's crucifixes and crosses and, you know, shattered stained glass. And, and so— and that's another element here is, is the role of Christianity, another kind of outside exotic influence within the Japanese society. Uh, it's never really caught on majorly, but there's always been this little thread. And, you know, there are, you know, even though it's not expounded on at great length, there are sort of theological questions of, of you know, why me, God? Why did you let this happen to me? And of, of repentance and sorrow and 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 you know, seeking some kind of absolution for his misdeeds. I mean, you know, Gil's going through this existential crisis as well as, you know, fighting for his life. He's like, what did I ever do that was wrong? You know, why is this, you know, so so he's he's being been tormented by experience and there is kind of this, this spiritual thread there. And, and then May is kind of like more dismissive of all that garbage talk, but you, you sort of sense the tensions there. Um, but, but, Eventually, they they kind of achieve a reconciliation, and and May takes it upon himself. It was after his life has basically been, you know, pulled away from under him. Now his home has been destroyed. He he finds a way to box up his his meager collection of of jazz records, his little trumpet. I mean, he loses his dog. His dog is killed uh, by Gill, and and that's another. You'd think that would sort of break the relationship right there. But somehow May and Gil find this ability to to reconnect after these really gross offenses that 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 uh, May has experienced, and and May takes it upon himself after everything else has been lost. He has really nothing else to live for, or nothing else to fall back on. He's going to have to rebuild his life at some point, but he takes it upon himself to to get Gil to his destination, which is to somehow reconnect to the sea, which becomes kind of this kind of all-embracing mother figure that, that Gil is trying to get to before he dies. He, he he doesn't expect to escape and, you know, make a new life for himself. He he recognizes that he's going to be pinned down and hunted down, but he wants to get to the sea. And again, there's this kind of, I don't know what it is, there's this kind of spiritual quest that goes on there. And it's 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 pretty manic, it's pretty crazy. It becomes this kind of big, elaborate chase scene. But I, I don't know, I just, I just find it fascinating uh, these these transitions, the way that Kurahara will kind of get us into this kind of gripping action, you know, pursuit, and then the action slows down, and it's just this kind of very montagey, jazzy improv thing of just just different images weaving in and out of each other as as the as the as the pursuit kind of gets to this incredibly memorable conclusion. Mm. 
that's what I love about rewatching this film is like, what are the steps? What are the, what are the different passages on this journey before <laughs> Gil makes his final incredible exit from the, from the film? <laughs> the ending, I don't know if I should find it moving or just utterly ironic. Uh, this whole, you know, it's, it's all of that. It's all of that. It's it's amazing. <laughs> it's uh, insane, yeah. Uh, I don't know if we are allowed to spoil, but uh, oh, let, let's go for it. I mean, you know, I, I think it's it's just such a, it's such an amazing climax that I'd like to be able to just kind of get people's reactions to it, yours and Trevor's. Um, so yeah, so they they kind of start off in this junkyard, uh, and and of course. May's doing the best he can to get Gil to the sea. I mean, again, neither of them speak each other's language, but they, but May, I think, knows a few words, and, and maybe Gil picks up a little bit of what May is saying as well. But they get him, first of all, they get to this little harbor, this little murky, oil-slick-infested channel, and that's not the sea. What Gil envisions is the rolling waves and the infinite expanse of the horizon. Uh, all he sees is kind of a sludgy little inlet, you know, an industrially compromised wasteland. Uh, but 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 Gil knows that, or May knows that if they get a little bit further, if they can just elude capture one more time, they can at least get to a, a view where maybe at the far fringes of, of the bay... There is the sea itself, and they they end up kind of getting into a dead end situation into this building where they have to run up all these different ramps of stairs, and and that's where the film kind of reaches its climax, and Gil recognizing that there's no way out except up, <laughs> happens to find this weather balloon, and he straps himself to it, and then beseeches May to make that fateful. You know, decision to to shoot the rope to to basically undo this knot that's keeping him anchored, and he goes soaring off into the sky once that rope is snapped. It's just it's just a fantastic, unbelievable, crazy climax to this film. <laughs> so yeah, so so what do you guys think of that? Now that go, I just go, thoroughly go ahead, spoiled Pablo. it, I'm, if you I'm, haven't seen it, I'm I'm curious about your reaction. I'll, I, I've I'll go. I'll go second, not to undercut or anything like that. But I'm. I'll let you go. <laughs> well, I very much loved it. The whole insanity of uh, a man being tied to a balloon, floating in the sky. He may be free, but uh, we can doubt that it will turn out fine for him. Once. Oh no! He, this is a one-way <laughs> ride. <laughs> once you know a bird, or once his balloon loses air. Or even bursts. Uh, well, it's a moment of joy in some ways, but well, it will not last long, which makes this ending so utterly enjoyable for me. I love this yeah. kind of mean spirited. <laughs> well, of- it's it's just this wild abandon. I mean, it's like he's gonna either be shot by the military authorities and again die like a dog. Or they're going to capture him alive and he's going to be sent to prison and just rotting in a cell for who knows how many years. And it it may be, you know, it probably is a kind of a suicidal gesture on Gil's part. But given the alternatives, 
you know? <laughs> what better way to, to make a, a flaming exit? You know, I mean, it's, 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 again, to me, I'm not saying this is a serious life choice that we should all be considering. <laughs> but, but an, an artistic statement of just, again, where the film has, where it started, again, even as a, if you want to say a spiritual or a direct sequel to the Warped Ones, I think you can make the case that, Akira, the character from the Warp One, is the same guy. I mean, his his uh, somewhat girlfriend Yuki, uh, the the female character who was a pretty you know charismatic presence in the Warp Ones, also sort of has a a significant scene or two here uh, as the alluring, kind of maniacally laughing uh, you know seductive girl. Uh, that that also is another piece of continuity, and the fact that they kind of hang out in the same kind of jazz bar in both films. So. Uh, whether this is the same character, you know, uh, Akira slash May kind of continuing his story or not, but it starts from this incredibly wild, rebellious place, and then it just kind of takes it through the roof, uh, literally. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I, think yeah. That, I think that's a, a – that you know, the, the trajectory of both of these films, uh, you know, put from one to the other is just, you know, continual escalation. And I think that's a, that's a pretty uh, – excellent achievement just just how you know over the top you know over the top of the top if you will uh uh kurahara was able to take this this uh, story arc and so i you know that i just i really just get a lot of enjoyment out of watching this one yeah well it's 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 a great way to show transcendence you know here's someone who doesn't really belong who's trying to escape and you know, boom, they make it, they make it. And, and he's, he, there's no place for him in this world. And so there's nowhere to go, but up, but I love how that's undercut by, and then right back down, you know, somewhere, somewhere in the sea, as you guys have said, maybe they're going to get, they're going to capture him. Um, there's no real escape. It's just a, a moment right. of, uh, symbolic, um, explosion almost, you know, like the character has, Nowhere to go but to just um, pop, <laughs> you well, know, yeah, to I go mean, up. Visually, he flies into the sun, you know. So, I mean, he's being just sort of burned to a crisp, if you will. I mean, he's not astronomically going 93 million miles into outer space, but that's 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 the where you see it going. I mean, he's kind of flying up and then that, that kind of, you know, uh, that bright sun, not exactly a black sun, but... Uh, you know, that sun kind of consumes him while May down on the ground is getting arrested and you kind of have that same uh, freeze frame grimacing face. A little bit different. <laughs> Maybe but, but this similar. is a prequel to uh, the Warped Ones. <laughs> oh, now there's a, there's a theory that we could elaborate <laughs> on. I, yes. I got to say, I didn't like that part in the liner notes. I think it's actually kind of uh, comical because it's like uh, Akira – who is now played, or who is now goes by the name of May, <laughs> yeah. um, is back on the street. And then when it gets to Gil, it's like, and you know, Chico Roland is back as as Gil, but apparently Akira doesn't recognize him anymore. You know, and, and I'm like, oh, come on, you know that. But yeah. I do see the relationship in themes, and I think that that uh, uh, goes a long way to that. But I did, I actually thought that that was a part of the liner notes where I'm like. Uh, you know, you're he's, not, he's you're over not pressing even, the case there a little bit. There. Yeah, and and not even acknowledging that it isn't the case that he's speaking more metaphorically or or just thematic connections. It's it's pretty blatantly here's the same character. This is a sequel. 
Mm, yeah. uh, here you go. But anyway, the, when, kind of neither here nor there. <laughs> yeah, as I've said, um, it's also a case of typecasting. Tamio Kawachi usually played uh, such roles. But uh, one, <laughs> the IMDb actually would support the thesis of the prequel because uh, you may have noticed it, it in the credits it's listed as Akira is Tamio Kawachi uh, wrongly uh, in the IMDb page of uh, Kuro Itayu of Black Sun. So yeah, well, a little and, mistake and, and, here. Well, and the Eclipse, not the Eclipse set puts the same thing as well. I mean, they, they call him Akira and then in parentheses May in quotations <laughs> as like May is some kind of like a, a pseudonym or, a, you know, or is, or is he just trying to say I'm me like as me as in English? Because that's kind of how he pronounces it. Uh, I don't know. I mean, that I, we're getting into the deep weeds there. <laughs> but but yeah, I mean, I to me, this this was a really, you know, again, I've already said, but this is a deeply enjoyable, you know, romp of, of insanity of a film. And and. I think for what it sets out to accomplish, it it does so quite magnificently. So, you know, I'm not going to say this is like a five star, you know, pillar of classic cinema, but it's it's a it's an obscurity that I think deserves to be seen and and appreciated. Uh, well, if people can get out of its wavelength, I mean, th- there are probably some viewers who are going to find some of the racial stereotyping mm. uncomfortable. It's it's definitely uh, a relic of its time. Um, you know, I think, you know, you, if you're not somebody who appreciates kind of some of the, you know, uh, more free form styles of jazz, or it's just so far out of your element and experience that it's going to take some sort of time to assimilate or catch up to it. You, you may not, you know, find that this film clicks with you the same way that it does with me, but I, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of black sun. Mm, me too. Uh, anything more to say about that? Any any other points you want to bring out, Pablo, that we didn't quite touch on? Well, just one last point. Uh, I understand that some people could consider this film uh, racist uh, because it, in some ways at least, seems to enforce uh, racial stereotypes. But I think what the real message is, is in the end that uh, our black guy, our GI, is just another human being and and our hero may uh, has to um, has to learn that through a very tough ordeal so I believe the conclusion and in the end there may be not perfect but mutual friendship somewhat undermines uh, the argument that uh, of the enforcing of racial stereotypes which I'm sure some people will claim this film to do. Yeah. Well, I think I think the racial stereotypes were there. I think they were of just course, part yeah. of what the Japanese consciousness as a society. I mean, not not to you know label individuals or or overly generalize, but you know this was a this is a uh, a film kind of about a breakthrough of sorts, a, a, a growth and understanding. And uh, uh, what's that one? The Defiant Ones, I think, where you had the the white and the black prisoners in the chain gang who were kind of shackled together. An American film of some, roughly the same era, and and you know these films kind of show uh, 
cultures, you know, very awkwardly sometimes and very clumsily coming to grips with each other. And, and you think, well, 40, 50, 60 years later, we'd like to think we've made some progress. And I think we have, but I think it's, it's very worthwhile to go back and just sort of watch these, these encounters uh, captured on film and as limited or sometimes even as ignorant as they are, they're still documenting some, some valuable history that I think allows us to get a better appreciation of the journey that people of various cultures have had to make to, to, you know, arrive at a place of better understanding and appreciation of, of uh, what the different cultures of our world have to give to the rest of us. So I don't know. Trevor, you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I agree with Pablo that the film may have uh, depictions of racial stereotyping, but I don't think it itself is is uh, endorsing or even supports that those hold up. I, I agree that Gil um, is shown as a human being first and foremost, and that it's May's own um, impressions of him that have to change, and his are based on stereotypes. In fact, I, I would almost say that Gil is... Uh, almost stripped of of culture in, in and of uh any kind of um uh, uh, presumptions you could make about him based on his skin because he's so primally um human in his in his desperation to just escape and get out of there and it doesn't really leave room for him to to uh to do much else now there there are, is the part of the where they paint his face white and the part where where May paints his face black in order to kind of uh, enact some kind of an escape, but even there, I think May has just um, you know got this idea that you know maybe, maybe this will work. Um, I don't think it's it's racist. I think it's and I don't think it's played for laughs entirely either. I think it's showing a little bit of the naivete, and um, you know the, the film itself just doesn't support those uh, that world view. Of um, of stereotypes, I don't think. Yeah, they they bring Gil into that jazz bar and and uh, kind of people expect him to dance and perform and again, so you you sort of see sort of the, the more broad perspective of assumptions that people make. Um, but yeah, I, I think again, it's just it's just kind of a documentation of of what people were thinking. I mean. You know, they they go into a bar and there's all these posters of black jazz musicians all over the walls and everybody's just kind of grooving to the music. And now all of a sudden, whoa, you've got a real black man and, and uh, he's even referred to as a slave. And uh, yeah, so so again, those are, well, those but, are those. But, but, then he, yeah. but then he shows that he can't do it. He isn't who exactly. they think he is. Exactly, you know? right. So. This, this is rather mature, especially for its time period, that a director would chose to uh, to play with racial stereotypes and at the same time uh, undermines undermining them uh, yeah he's very much challenging them. he's not yeah, he's not exactly. kind of feeding into it and if you think about american films of this same era that often still played racial stereotypes for for laughs you know just you know making fun of you know chinese people i think some of the mickey rooney roles where he yeah it just i mean it's just it's just it's really grotesque to watch those now because you sort of see from the 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 vantage point of a sort of a assumed cultural superiority this mockery and that's that's really hard to watch this this is something different than that so uh yeah to me well, it's a pretty worthwhile 
sort of a you know, cross-cultural examination going on there. Well, what, one other thing, one last thing I wanted to kind of tack on here at the end is you know, sometimes when you watch a film that is trying to upend stereotypes, they end up creating uh, just a new set. You know, like, yes. oh, you, you, all you guys think that we're actually this way, but you're wrong. We're actually this way. <laughs> you know, you should, this is <laughs> right. how you should see us now. Here's some new and generalities it, to project out yes, to the exactly. whole bunch of us, right? It, we, we aren't savages. We're actually incredibly noble, you know, and, and it's like, well, this film just doesn't allow that to happen. We, we really only see Gil as someone who, you know, is very much just like all of us would be in this situation, just a little, you know, desperate and, and not, um, not playing into other other stereotypes that uh, sometimes some are shattered and others crop up, you know, like the, you know, I, I kind of think of how, how sometimes the, the Native Americans are depicted, you know, uh, it used to be, um, and I'm speaking in generalities a little yes. bit, but, you know, depictions of, of them as savages. Um, and then you start to get, oh, well, that's just not right. Now we need to depict that as just the ideal lifestyle. You know, these these were, uh, all of them are one with nature. All of them are, you know, just this this unique perspective that we, you know, should embrace rather than try to destroy. And um, I was listening to um, an author, Sherman Alexi, speak on this once. And he said, you know, you know, we're actually really dumb sometimes. Some of us are fully the stereotypical drunk Indian on the reservation, and some of us aren't. You know, here I am speaking to you guys, and he he just kind of argued against these these stereotypes in any form uh, whatsoever. Um, and you know, I I think that this film kind of fits. I, I think he might like this film just because it. it doesn't um, create a new paradigm or a new set of parameters that everybody should uh, should try to see through in order to get an idea of, of you know a black man you know what what are they supposed to be like? Very good. Okay, well, I think we had a great conversation about Black Sun. So I thank you guys for for walking us through that one. Let's go ahead and turn our attention now to, to Thirst for Love. This is a film from uh, three years later, 1967, and although I don't know a lot about Kurahara's filmography, I assume he was probably busy making other films between uh, the two. Uh, Pablo, you have any thoughts to offer just on what Kurahara was doing doing during this uh, portion of the 60s, the mid-60s? Well, uh, he certainly directed many films. <laughs> yeah, he but, was he was he was one of these directors who was just putting out a whole bunch of different stuff. Yeah, right? incredibly I mean. prolific. So so, so third sorry. Uh, it's rather hard to pinpoint him mm-hmm. because uh, you know you as we've seen in this box set, every film was rather different. Some were commercial features and some were very interesting. For example, uh, one film we do not have to talk about it, is A Flame of Devotion, which I just quickly recommend here, which is from 1964, and which is uh, similar to Thirst for Love, but in my opinion, much better. But, sorry. <laughs> okay, oh, so, so you say it's, it's, it's better than Thirst for Love. It, yeah. You recommend that one. Really. And, and what is it called? Uh, Quest? Uh, for Flame de- of Devotion. Flame of Devotion, okay. 1964. Well. All right, well, so so just as, as for somebody who wants to go deeper into Kurahara, how would how would somebody 
you know, get a hold of that film? Is that something you have to order in Japan or find a torrent somewhere? I mean, what's your source for this kind of stuff? Because I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm stumped as far as more Kurahara. I think Antarctica, which maybe we can talk about at the end, that might be somewhat available just because it was such a big commercial success. But how do you find some of his, uh, you know, non-criterion stuff? Well, you should... Uh, well, <laughs> I don't know. It's the so-called gray market. You, okay, oh, that's fine. Yeah, so <laughs> you, you have to say no more. Don't don't compromise your sources there. <laughs> All right. Well, let's talk about thirst for love then. So, uh, uh, with that little tantalizing tidbit hanging out there, uh, thirst for love is a film starring, uh, and you may not have almost recognize her, Ruriko Asoka, who was the uh, lead female in I Hate But Love. Um, to me, this is a pretty remarkable transformation that took place. Um, and uh, Ruko Asoka was a very big female star. And in this performance in particular, she shows such incredible uh, poise and vulnerability and and just a, such a powerful screen presence. I was very impressed uh, because in I Hate But Love, she plays a, a much different type of character, kind of a... Uh, kind of a snazzy, snappy, sassy, you know, chick uh, who's kind of very much into the mod uh, front end of of the Japanese entertainment industry. She's a manager for a you know a popular star, and and she's very spunky and just has a lot of a lot of flair and 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 kind of a fun style to her. In in Thirst for Love, she plays a woman who's been widowed at a pretty young age. She's she's very beautiful, and of course she's beautiful in both roles. But in this in this presentation, she's much more of the traditional Japanese beauty with her with her long hair typically tied up, uh, wearing the traditional kimono and the and the attire of a of a dignified uh, Japanese housewife. Um, but, but because she's lost her husband and her husband was the, I think, oldest son of a very wealthy family, she's kind of become part of this family system. And as a, as a beautiful woman, a very desirable woman, uh, who's yet unmarried, she has her own needs and desires. Uh, again, as the title implies her own thirst for love that is, uh, not exactly being fulfilled or at least uh, is being you know temporarily filled by some pretty obnoxious substitutions, uh, namely the affection and erotic attention of her father-in-law who's taken her as a bit of a mistress slash concubine uh, to kind of give pleasure to mostly from what I can tell through massage. Um, but uh, yeah, that's that's kind of the opening entry as as we see her giving her father in law a shave, and it's it's almost this kind of idyllic type of scene where he's kind of out asleep on a deck and and kind of in this little you know tranquil you know, reverie, and uh, she's kind of having her own little disturbances, if you will, and and uh, she makes a little slip and uh, you know leaves a cut, and he reacts pretty pretty negatively thinking that she's maybe trying to harm him. So you can already tell within this relationship, there's a lot of mistrust, a lot of skepticism. I mean, he knows the father-in-law knows that he's taking advantage of this woman, uh, his daughter-in-law. Uh, but there's, there's a mutual exchange. I mean, she's getting to live in comfort and security and, and a, at least an imitation of pleasure. But 
she wants more. And so you get into this uh, woman-centered, uh, erotic, uh, I don't know, this this kind of, it's it's not a fantasy, it's not exactly a melodrama, it's just kind of this psychological study of of a woman in a pretty frustrating situation in life and the measures that she goes to to try to you know find some some relief from this pressure that she's feeling she she falls somewhat in love with a young man he's probably the most virile young man in her very contained environment uh, but he's a servant he's just basically a hired hand who works on the family estate you know plucking chickens and just doing chores around the the property and yet she finds him you know uh sexually attractive and and he, he but he's also so awkwardly unsure of how to conduct himself once he recognizes that she has his her attention focused on him he he's kind of in a stuck situation he he can't really just go for it he can't just you know allow himself to be seduced by her because he knows there's huge consequences if he happens to get caught and not only that, but he's got a girlfriend, somebody from his own class and station in life that he kind of, you know, you know, feels more comfortable with and is more on his level. So, yeah, there's all these kind of weird, you know, psychological and sexual dynamics going on. And it's to me, is this is a very you know, intriguing film that that is just full of. You know, all signs. You know, like I said earlier those indelible moments. It's it's just a, it's just an aura of of feeling, of emotion, of of tension that, yeah. Again, I, I found very very compelling and uh, just a very fascinating experience of watching it. And again, just really just compelled by the amazing performance of Ruriko Asoka, who I think uh, just really puts herself out there in a in a very different way than. Than uh, you know, Tomio Kiyachi or or Chico Roland did, um, but but really invests herself into a role which, to me, given my understanding of her of her incredible popularity, this seemed like a risky role. Like she she didn't have to do this type of performance uh, because it goes into some very dark places. It's like, wow, did this did this jeopardize her standing as kind of a a pop princess of some sort or what was it about her that says, yeah, I'm going to take this role and I'm going to do some things that are pretty astonishing <laughs> uh, for, for a star of her magnitude at this time. So again, maybe Pablo, you've got some context about uh, her career or just kind of what was happening in, in popular Japanese cinema around this time. Well, around this time, of course, uh, Japanese cinema was in a crisis like it had never uh, been before. Uh, television started to arise and um, it was a sort of renaissance for the Japanese film uh, simply because uh, directors and studios tried their best to somehow uh, get all the audiences back in the seats and well sometimes it really worked for example uh, in the late films of uh, Kurara in the late Nikatsu films and sometimes it very much misfired, for example, with Brandy to Kill, uh, which famously uh, was a disaster at the box, box office. I sadly don't know if uh, uh, Thirst for Love was a commercial flop at that time, but it certainly uh, nailed uh, 
what's the expression? Nail to the, nail to the coffin or something. Yeah, that's the expression right there. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, Kuala was, let, was uh, fired after Thirst for Love. So it was a very daring film, especially for its time. Not, not uh, perhaps in the context of it being more daring or more controversial than other films which were released at the same time, but simply because it dared to be artistically interesting in a time of uh, deep commercial troubles, especially for Nikatsu. Yeah? I wonder what uh, Kurara thought when he made this film, yeah? especially, as I said, in this time. Yeah? Yeah, time that um, uh, uh, Shochiku was was delving into the horror genre to oh, see if exactly. they could uh, make ends meet and and uh, get a, a little bit of a different reputation there. Um, yeah, I I, I do want to um, to say you know I, I, I at the beginning I kind of said these aren't my favorite films of the set and that still probably stands, but uh, I do think that uh, that this film has so much that's interesting in it, and I think that uh, Ruriko Asoka, her her performance is sublime in it. She's she's fantastic from beginning to end. So um, those are not my my main issues with the film. In fact, I think that you know the way that it sets it up, as David described, with her you know shaving her father in law, um, that's just a a very compelling scene, and a lot of it's because you can tell that it's Suko. It is thinking about killing her father-in-law, or at least realizes that she could. Maybe she's not going to do it, but she knows she's got the power to at that moment. And there's the inkling of temptation and um, maybe a little bit of the pleasure that that would bring um, because she is in this this tight situation. And I, I just think it's fantastic that the film is able to show that so well um, just through her. Now, I, I think the film where it starts to kind of slip up a little bit is it doesn't just show it through her. It tries to, to tie images together that are going to come up later on in the film with like the, um, when, uh, Saburo is, is cutting the heads off the chickens uh, to drain their blood. You know, we all of a sudden we see flashes of that at that first part. And I just didn't think things like that were very necessary and actually took me out of the, the more internal psychological power that that scene was creating and I felt that I felt that throughout the film, actually, that there were a lot of kind of um, artistic choices or editing choices that rather than underline or enhance or continue to evoke um, my emotions, kind of did the opposite and started to kind of bat, bash me over the head like, oh, guess what she's thinking right now? Or, you know, things like that or um, or just strange camera placement. Um, choices like at the dinner table i like the overhead shot to show the whole family you know, there's this gigantic brood of people that this uh, rather awful father-in-law um controls but then when we're listening to each of them talk and we we, we watch them all through the chandelier you know several different i mean that must have taken forever <laughs> to set those shots up and i can see why the 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 directors are like look did you need to spend that much time and film and money just setting up these shots through the chandelier. I mean, I, I just didn't think that that um, really enhanced the film and rather pulled me in and said, hey, there's the there, there's Kurahara um, making sure that, you, you know, every shot is unique or different than what you might be expecting. Um, and, and it started to dis do a disservice to the film. 
Um, but but on the whole, I do want to now that I've said that, go back to I, I do think this film is is impressive and that central drama between um, Etsuko and uh, the the father in law and Saburo, and, and then throwing in Saburo's uh, girlfriend Mio, that all that's all really compelling and very interesting um, uh, drama that uh, I think was served very well by what they did, but then maybe was um, knocked down a few pegs by other things that they did. Mm. So, so kind of like Kurahara was overplaying his uh, impressionistic hand a bit there. To that's the kind of how it felt. Yeah. I, I think that's a fair critique. Go ahead, Tre- yeah, Pablo. I agree with uh, Trevor on that one. Um, I, had, I don't want to sound demeaning, but I some, sometimes saw, thought that... Uh, the film was just artsy for the sake of being artsy. Uh, the visuals were often quite mesmerizing uh, and visually very much stunning. But uh, it's, that's what I said in the beginning. It felt somewhat shallow. Uh, as Trevor said, I didn't have had the feeling that all of these visuals, visuals are there to support, you know, the film's uh, themes and the film's story. So that would be my biggest point of criticism, perhaps. Well, and, and knowing, so I don't think we've talked about it, but this is based on a Yukio Mishima novel. And he's, you know, he's always kind of got this dark, lusty, you know, almost I hate but love or I love but hate kind of relationships in his in his stories. They're very... Um, sexual and uh, very uh, not always i mean we've got patriotism which is a kind of a loving relationship but they're much um, uh, sex and violence and um and those themes come out beautifully here but what he doesn't have are these other kind of flourishes that um i i think that uh, kurahara throws in here that are just unnecessary and do kind of take away from those powerful you know, internal moments that that we might get from Yukio Mishima, but um, you know, I, I almost wonder if Kurahara was like, "Well, I got to throw in more of myself here." Um, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, maybe Kurahara was getting a sense of himself as as an auteur, and and again, when you are in this milieu where you've got Oshima, you've got Imamura, you've got Suzuki, you've got others who are kind of doing their own sort of visual stylings and kind of creating this profile for themselves. And that's one of the mysteries of Kurahara, as I mentioned at the beginning of our uh, previous episode. There just doesn't seem to be a lot of biographical information about Kurahara or what made the guy tick. He doesn't stand out as a personality in the same way that those other directors I've mentioned. You know, you've got not only their films, but their their theories, their writings, their persona. Kurahara is basically just, (laughs) his profile at least feels kind of like a salary man of of Japanese directors. You know, you see the the ticks, the visual signature of his films, but he doesn't seem to write a whole lot or, or, uh, you know, have this sort of philosophical platform that he's established as to why he does what he does. And so you, you do... I, I, you know, as I sort of consider what you're both saying, I, yeah, I think you could make the case that he is just kind of, you know, showing some flash without a whole, uh, you know, backlog of substance behind it. You know, again, I, I, I find this film just 
you know, mesmerizing. I think that's a word that uh, that Pablo used. Yeah, this is just it's just kind of a, a little hypnotic journey to a world to get lost in, and 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 then of course as you get lost in it, <laughs> every so often I'm I'm kind of awoken to the fact that. Wow, you know, Esco is doing some really awful things <laughs> as she as she oh, kind of yeah. manipulates her way through these relationships. I mean, he's forcing a woman into an abortion. Mm. She's basically breaking and manipulating hearts wherever she goes. Again, is this a is this kind of a, a woman's revenge fantasy? Is this just kind of a howl of of protest and outrage at what her life has become? And so you know, misery loves company type of thing. Uh, is this an indictment of uh, the Japanese patriarchy that that puts, uh, you know, a beautiful and very capable woman, uh, a woman capable of, of living her own life, pursuing her own dreams, uh, finding her own fulfillment, and yet she's kind of subjugated and um, denied those possibilities because the, the traditional order of things says, well, you you have to be with father-in-law and, and honor your filial commitments, even though he's molesting you and taking advantage of you. Again, there's this pretty illicit bargain that's been struck in the whole process. And, and then also to contrast that, there's the second son who's, you know, quite cheerfully <laughs> indolent and and just kind of a, a lazy freeloader. He's he's living off the family's wealth, and he kind of openly brags about how unmotivated he is. <laughs> well, but my biggest problem with uh, Thirst for Love is I liked the film, but I thought it felt somewhat patchy, uh, in the sense that it reminded me of many other new wave films. So it's somewhat lacks the creativity of other uh, Kurahara films. For example, the visual style, style you know, this natural lighting, uh, almost overexposed, very bright light, uh, reminded me very much of another new wave director, uh, Yoshida Yoshida, who also made films uh, with singular themes about the blights and joys of women in a patriarchic, uh, repressed environment, or women who are, who get, um, uh, you know, <laughs> sorry. Um, no, I, I see the relationship you're talking about. I hadn't made that connection, but you're, you're talking about the, the heavy lighting and such that definitely, um, takes me to the, to Yoshida as well. I hadn't thought about that and it didn't, it wasn't something that necessarily bothered me. Um, but no, I, I, I think you're right. Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, um, yeah, and, you know, I've seen many um, adaptations of uh, Mishima's work, and I am at a point where I <laughs> believe that they all look the same, <laughs> really. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> well, there are brilliant, brilliant adaptations. There's Konnichikawa's Angel, which uh, is actually one of my all-time favorite films, but there's always the same style of visual style. So I felt that, but that some way uh, Kurahara didn't have anything new to bring to the table. He instead uh, just, you know, uh, ruminated <laughs> the old uh, visual uh, visual stylistica, which. Uh, characterize uh, Mishima adaptations. B and 
Well, but for what it was, I thought it was quite effective. It was very central, as David uh, said, and it was very intense. And the ochre, of course, was not only absolutely beautiful, but absolutely stunning in her acting. Very, very impressively acted, yeah. Despite, I'm sorry, despite of her relatively slender stature, I was um, very surprised to see that her little dog was <laughs> almost as big as herself, or almost half as big. So I wonder, is Azaoka just very small, or did she have a massive dog? <laughs> <laughs> well, and Pablo, is, is you're talking to all of them feeling the same, um, I thought at the end this film nicely foreshadows the the Lady Snowblood, um, yeah. <laughs> which I don't remember seeing before. Um, but anyway, I've been a little, little irreverent, perhaps. But uh, <laughs> but I can see I can see where you come from. Yeah. Yeah, there, there. Yeah, I, that's a very interesting point about sort of the somewhat maybe derivative nature of Mishima adaptations and Kurahara's kind of following some kind of a template that had maybe been established by this point here for me at least um thirst for love benefits from its kind of uh, privilege of, of placement i haven't seen a lot of those other films and so to me this does feel maybe a little fresher a little bit more innovative uh maybe i'm just under ruriko asioka's spell <laughs> and i'm sufficiently satisfied with that to say yeah Hey, this this movie hits all the right spots for me. So, yeah, I, I actually appreciate a little bit of your uh, both of your critiques and and uh, you know pointing out some of the you know kind of sleight of hand that Kurahara might have resorted to, or 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 some of the padding, if you will, some of the fluff that he threw in there, which does have that kind of artsiness. But I still I, I like those those that that kind of refrain of those. Of that, those scenes where they're kind of walking down that slanted, that sloped street with that big wall behind them and having these dialogues, uh, you know, there, there, uh, these these flashes of red that pop up every so often, uh, just kind of throwing this kind of intensity in there. Again, it, it may be a bit of a uh, an indulgence. It doesn't necessarily accomplish anything it's just kind of a, a stylistic flair but you know i i'm willing to appreciate that for its own sake just to you know throw something that's maybe a little bit on the uh entertaining artsy side uh, you know, just just for its own sake uh, one thing i would like to add about rico azaoka's acting uh, what makes her performance even more impressive is that uh, mishima was famously bad at writing women and in this film her character really is quite interesting. She is not only this uh, type of suffering woman you see in so many Japanese films. She she has she is certainly uh, repressed and uh, and you know uh, uh, not uh, you know repressed. Sorry, but uh, she's actually also quite cunning, as you've mentioned already. I mean, she. Oh yeah. <laughs> She, she, uh, yeah, a girl gets an abortion basically because she uh, basically subtly uh, leads her to get an abortion, yeah. So, so she's certainly no perfect character, certainly not the kind of idealized woman character you find in so many other Japanese films. 
No, and she becomes rather rather demonic by the end. Oh, yeah. I mean, she's she's holding her hand over a flame to the point that her flesh starts to get disfigured, and and again, I mean, she's this almost this iconic beauty of of feminine purity. I mean, she's incredibly you know just gorgeous, and now she's willingly scarred herself. You know, so there's that. Uh, there's just this kind of you know cruelty that that just kind of you know transforms her character from this you know this uh ideal of feminine beauty to something much more scary and and risky and and in in some ways kind of horrifying uh she becomes a, a vicious killer at the end and i mean oh. honestly that scene again i'll i'll get into spoiler territory right here and now so Here's your warning, folks. <laughs> but but where she she where she kills Saburo at the end. I mean, again, I I had watched the film a you know you know a year or two ago, whenever it was when I last wrote it up. But then it's like when I watched it again, and she she kills this character. I mean, it was a truly heartbreaking moment for us. Like, oh my god, I cannot believe she went there. She did that to this poor young man, and it was just so so vicious and so brutal. I didn't. I didn't take pleasure from it, but it was incredibly effective. I mean, it, it just was stunning in, in its viciousness. And and so, again, just to kind of create this this strong emotional response from me, uh, for a guy who's watched a lot of movies and seen a lot of crazy things on cinema, it's like, wow, that really got to me, you know? And, and uh, again, it, I, I won't say it was a, a pleasant or an enjoyable sensation, but it, it was very powerful so so that in itself uh, struck me as pretty impressive yeah and in a somewhat perverse sense this was her empowerment her uh, yeah, emancipation yeah. in some ways yeah so to me this this is a film that i think uh, you know marks a pretty good point of of wrapping up the set just because again you get to see ruko asoka um kind of you know, reprise uh, her her involvement in Kurahara's films with a with a very different you know type of performance than what we saw in in I Hate But Love, and the, like as you, say, as you say, Pablo, this was the film that got Kurahara fired. Now, do you think this was because his contract had just run out and they decided not to renew, or was there somewhere in this film that he crossed a line? that Nikatsu was not able to forgive that. I read different accounts. Some say he just left uh, because he wanted to uh, pursue a independent career. But uh, some also say that he actually got fired. And it's diffi difficult to say, but I can, uh, I can understand that. Or sure. you can uh, surely guess that Nikatsu was pretty much fed up as I've said earlier, with uh, firms they considered anti-commercial. Uh, and, well, well, in a way, first for love fits that bill. It's certainly not uh, your, you know, your uh, Sunday afternoon fair which you watch and then forget, you know? No, no, right. This, yeah, I think anti-commercial is a pretty uh, apt uh, tag to put on this one because, yeah, there's, you know, in any conventional terms, there's not really a whole lot that's appealing about Etsuko's character. I mean, just because she does such horrible things. I mean, she's beautiful, and and there's a certain aesthetic appeal to what she does. But I'm sure 
from the studio head's perspective, they really wasted a, a box office draw here. You know, they cast her in this role that uh, turns out to be fairly repellent to, you know, the the middle class mindset. And and it's a, it's it's a film that's that's fairly aggressive in the way that it confronts its audience. It doesn't give you a lot of that feel good <laughs> walk out the door uh, sensation. So yeah, I can and I can also sort of see the the dis, this disputing narratives. Uh, you can't fire me. I quit. <laughs> type of thing going on (laughs) so so but that that did bring uh sort of kurahara's career to a closing chapter um and then he went on like you say to to create in the was it 1982 or when when did antarctica come out or was it the late 80s well anyway 83 it was it was the early 80s and and he made a film called antarctica uh what do you know about that film well Well, i've seen it it's well, Kurahara basically managed to transform himself uh, into a family-friendly, uh, um, you know, basically mainstream director. And yeah. Of course, he had always been mainstream, simply because he worked for, he worked as a contract director. But, uh, for example, Antarctica is, yeah, very schmaltzy with anthropomorphic animals and. A very, uh, you know, very uh, soft and, well, it's just not this kind of rebelliousness which we oh, have no. seen in this great box set. So, well, I'm sure uh, uh, <laughs> he uh, could support support him very well with these massively budgeted, uh, massively grossing uh, films. Uh, and Antarctica actually became the highest grossing film of all time up to that point in Japan. Right. It so, was finally surpassed by uh, Princess Mononoke, uh, yeah, an animated yeah. film by Miyazaki that many people adore. I'm sure many listeners yeah. have seen Princess Mononoke. But to think, yeah, Antarctica, I mean, a film, I don't know if you've seen it, that, that, that uh, March of the Penguins that came out uh, oh, yeah. you know, some years ago. Yeah. <laughs> it seems like sort of a precursor to that, oh, uh, yeah, which yeah. was was very popular, but it wasn't certainly the all-time highest grossing film ever no. in the United <laughs> States. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I, I have a problem with this kind of uh, anthropomorphic animal uh, portrayal, especially yeah. in uh, the Penguin film with Oh my God! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's 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 kind of a cheap ploy. It is definitely playing to the masses. It's a family movie, and you know, again, I'm a, I was a family guy. I mean, my kids are all grown adults now, but I remember taking my children and you know to to movies where we could all just sort of find something to enjoy. And of course, a lot of the the family oriented movies, you know, kind of maybe require a little bit of a dumbing down of the parents just to kind of go along to get along and all of that uh, but it seems like that's that's uh, that was the course that kurahara took and, and maybe it was the the trauma of being uh booted from his contract and and not having that same steady income maybe he tried the indie route for a while and and discovered that that was more challenging and and less lucrative than uh you know than than uh his future course of action ultimately turned out to be um but I'm I'm glad that we have this set. I'm glad that we have these representations of Kurahara's, uh, you know, uh, his emergence as a director, his his willingness to experiment, to uh, to 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 push up against some boundaries, to to get some 
great castings. I mean, these these films have some pretty memorable performances. It wasn't just what he was doing behind the camera. It was who he happened to have in front of him, uh, the set locations, the visual styles, uh, even when it got to be a little excessive through the chandeliers and all that kind of stuff. I mean, sometimes it is. It's just that, that willingness to go out on a limb there that uh, that makes these films, uh, you know, worthy of, of uh, revisiting and discussing and, and all of that. So, exactly. yeah. And, a, a, go ahead, sorry. Pablo. And he certainly was a completely unique director in many ways. So, even so that as I've um, mentioned before, it's incredibly difficult to classify him because he doesn't seem <laughs> like a, you know, like a Nikatsu director or a contract director at all. I mean, if you, for example, see a Suzuki film, then you can somewhat classify him into this and this genre, you know, uh, these borderless action films that Nikatsu uh, specialized in during the 60s. But in uh, in Kurahara's case, so many of his more unique films are completely, uh, yeah, completely without any equals, you know, and that's what makes him incredibly fascinating, still to me. And this book, book set basically just uh, started my interest for his work. And well, I'm sure we will, if we continue to uh, delve into the works of Koryoshi Kurahara, then I am sure we will uh, discover many, many more unique and surprising films. And yeah, that's really what's, what still intrigues me about this director. Yeah, I, I feel like even though these are maybe capture five of his most essential films, uh, even some of those perhaps even more mainstream type of offerings or things that just didn't Whatever, for whatever reason, make the cut. I mean, you know, five films and one Eclipse box set is pretty much pushing the limit, you know, as far as, especially for a director who's relatively unknown as far as name and reputation is concerned. I think they, I, I appreciate that Criterion actually put five films in the set. They probably could have gone with four or maybe even three and called it a day. Uh, this one here, was that, that was back in the days when I think the Eclipse series was, thriving a little bit more and they were willing to maybe roll the dice a little bit obviously the eclipse has been pretty quiet lately uh, oh, sadly. yeah it is it's it's pretty sad because i mean you know the dvd format obviously has some limitations and even from a consumer's perspective there are maybe fewer people willing to invest in it but uh yeah i don't know this this is a pretty pretty splendid uh you know probably top five type of set for me just because you get so much in it uh each of the films um is the is the kind of thing that i could sort of sit down and watch without you know anything compelling or mandating me to do so i just i enjoy them all for various reasons and uh really respect the work that kurahara did and and uh, glad that we have this little record of it i i think i may want to go explore some of those gray market sources <laughs> and, and, and uh you know in, in increase my familiarity with with kurahara's work so you, I, well, I will fill you in that's okay, sure. <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll have our little uh, you know, offline uh, you know, channels of communication for that thing. Well, Pablo, I want to really thank you for being our guest. I definitely appreciate the responses that uh, folks had for episode number one. I think uh, episode number two gave you even a little bit more of a platform to share your views and insights, and I really uh, deeply appreciate your contributions to our discussion today. Anytime. 
Well, thanks a lot, Pablo. So for our next episode, we are going to be getting into the world of George Bernard Shaw. That is Eclipse Series 20. Okay, so we're going to be, Trevor and I are just going to be doing that one on our own for our uh, July episode, uh, George Bernard Shaw on film, uh, talking about Major Barbara, Caesar and Cleopatra, Androcles and the Lion, and we might talk a little bit about Pygmalion, which was the first Shaw adaptation that he was involved with. Uh, that's a standalone Criterion release. I think it is out of print nowadays. But uh, George Bernard Shaw film on film will be our subject for July. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening in. Uh, we can be reached on Twitter at Eclipse Viewer. And uh, there's links to each of our websites and you know, all those things uh, on our show notes page. Pablo, let me just give you one last shot there. Well, how could people get in touch with you, read your work, uh, just find out more about what you're doing? Well, uh, you could, uh, well, first of all, you could visit my website, nippon-kino.net. Well, it's written <laughs> only in German, so uh, you can install. So if you are not familiar with German, then please go visit worldcinemaparadise.com, easterngeeks.net, or tasteofcinema.com. Uh, I write for all of those websites, and perhaps you can find uh, something to enjoy there. Oh, there's, there's plenty. I actually, there's a little kind of mini biography. Was it from Eastern Kicks? Uh, one of those websites that talks a little bit more about you. So there are links in the show notes, folks, if you want to find out more about Pablo. And I definitely recommend he's, you know, he's got some great things to say. And, and uh, especially the, the Okamoto essay that I mentioned in our last episode, that was very valuable to me. And uh, yeah, he definitely will, he will introduce you uh, through his writings to some films that, uh, haven't quite caught Criterion's attention yet. So if you want to keep your exploration of uh, vintage Japanese cinema going, Pablo is an excellent uh, facilitator for that. So thanks again, Pablo, for joining us, and thank you, everyone, for listening in. Uh, David Blakesley signing off for the Eclipse Viewer, Episode 45. Goodbye. <laughs>